Well, a very warm welcome to everyone to our uh, meeting tonight. It's great to have you with us. Uh, Welcome to this 2018 Martin Lloyd-Jones Memorial Lecture. Uh, We're delighted to welcome uh, Dr. Joel Beakey as our speaker this evening. And our theme is Reformed Piety, Covenantal and Experiential. And we could scarcely imagine a better title uh, for a lecture Uh, uh, by which to commemorate uh, the Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was very much of the school of experiential uh, Calvinism. And indeed, when he founded London Seminary, his vision was very much to train men not merely by informing their minds, but by warming their hearts. And he had a clear sense that preaching was not merely communicating information, but rather communicating something of a passion from the heart of the preacher to the hearts of the congregation. And so that goes very much to the theme that we're going to be thinking of uh, tonight. We're looking forward very much, uh, Dr. Beakey, to what you have to say uh, to us. We're going to begin by standing to sing a hymn which takes up this theme of wholehearted worship of our God. Number 14 in the uh, uh, New Christian Hymn Book. Number 14, it's a setting of Psalm 146. I'll praise my maker While I've breath, and when my voice is lost in death, praise shall employ my nobler powers. Let's stand and sing number 14. my maker while I breath, and when my voice is lost in death, praise shall employ my nobler house. My days of praise shall never be past while life and thought and being lost for immortality endures. Happy the man whose hopes rely on Israel's God
Please be seated. Let's bow our heads and our hearts before God as we seek his blessing, as we come before him in prayer. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we worship you. We praise you and adore you because we owe all things to you. You are our creator who has summoned us into existence from nothing, who has formed us from the dust, who day by day gives us life and breath and existence, who supplies all of our daily needs, who sets us in this creation for our enjoyment and for our good, who guides and directs our paths according to your good pleasure, for our good and for your glory. And gracious God, we worship you most of all for your love for us, who are such sinners, worthy only of your wrath and your condemnation. And yet how gracious you have been towards us, that you have given us your only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross on our behalf, there to bear the wrath that we so richly deserve, there to die that we might live, there indeed to suffer, that we might rejoice at your right hand with eternal pleasures forevermore. And, O oh, gracious God, we are conscious that your being and your many mercies to us command a response of heartfelt praise, not mere verbal acknowledgement or accent, not merely the singing of our psalms and our hymns, but indeed uh, the service of our lives, our whole being of heart and mind and soul and strength. And gracious God, we have that measure of shame even as we come to you tonight because we are conscious of the paucity of our own Christian experience, that we do not adequately feel these things, that we are not sufficiently gripped by these realities, and our response is so half-hearted, so lukewarm, so shallow, so faltering, so inadequate. And gracious God, we long to grow in our desire, in our appetite, in our experience, in our enjoyment, and most of all in our obedience in every aspect of our lives. And so, gracious God, we come to this lecture tonight with that sense of anticipation, that sense of desire, uh, that even as Dr. Beakey speaks to us, that you would come and you would speak to our hearts, that you would come to us by your Holy Spirit and that you would meet with us and you would do a new work that indeed not only would we be informed in our minds, but we would be warmed in our hearts. And we thank you for our dear brother, Dr. Beakey. We thank you for his many gifts. We thank you for his extensive uh, ministry that has made an impact on such multitudes we thank you for bringing him to this place tonight, and we pray, gracious God, that even as he speaks, that you would fill him with your Holy Spirit, that you would guide him, that you would direct him, that he might know that liberty and enjoyment of your blessing, even as he speaks to us. And we pray, gracious God, that everything that is said and done tonight and all of our response might be to your praise and honour and glory. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I just want to uh, repeat my welcome to you that I gave at the very beginning of the meeting, and I want uh, to encourage you 
uh, tonight. To stay behind after the meeting, there is tea and coffee available at the back of the hall. It gives us an opportunity to spend a little bit of time together and get to know uh, one another a little bit better. I notice that there are some faces here that I don't recognize. I think various churches are represented uh, here this evening, so it's a good opportunity for interchurch Uh, fellowship and engagement. Uh, Also an opportunity for you to have a look at some of the literature uh, of the seminary and of the pastor's academy um, on the table um, at the back. And also, uh, please bear in mind that as Dr. Beakey is speaking to us in his lecture uh, tonight, at the end of the lecture there will be a brief time of Q&A. So if questions occur to you or there are issues that raise, are raised in your, in your heart and mind as Dr. Beaky is speaking to us, then please do tuck that away and we will have a brief time of Q&A um, at the end. Uh, but of course the greatest welcome is for, uh, is for Dr. Joel Beaky himself. It's great to have uh, you w- with us and Mary, uh, your wife. Um, it was a delight to welcome them to Heathrow Airport uh, last night. If they, if they uh, are a little bit blurry today, they might be forgiven. Uh, they only got in at midnight uh, last night and are still recovering from uh, jet lag, but nevertheless uh, show remarkable vitality in the face of such um, adversity. Uh, so it's great to have you with us. Uh, I'm not sure what to say in introducing uh, Dr. Beakey to us. There are so many things I could say. Um, He is, of course, the president of uh, Puritan and Reformed uh, uh, Theological Seminary. Uh, He is a pastor of Heritage Reformed Congregation in Grand Rapids. And he is editorial director of uh, uh, Reformation Heritage uh, Books. Um, I could say very much more, uh, but I won't. Yes, I'll say a little bit more. Um, uh, He's the author of very many books, uh, 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 over 100 books, I believe, he's authored or co-authored. But particularly, I think today is a special day, isn't it, uh, Dr. Beaky? Is it today uh, is the publication date of your new volume on Reformed Preaching? Is that right? Today? Today is the publication date. And indeed, when you go back to the States, you're not going back home, but you're going back uh, to Pennsylvania and there to a conference on preaching and preachers. And every delegate at that conference will be given a free copy of this book, Reformed Preaching. So if you're tempted, uh, just a little trip over to Pennsylvania and that copy could yet uh, be yours. So ask Dr. Beakey about that uh, at the end of the meeting. He's very uh, grieved that he couldn't bring over a massive selection, a big bookstall of Reformation Heritage books. But sadly, his luggage allowance was somewhat uh, limited Uh, But uh, perhaps you can ask him also about his forthcoming uh, systematic theology. But uh, uh, Joel and Mary, it's a delight to have you with us. And we're very much uh, looking forward with anticipation to your ministry. So please, without further ado, do come. um, And may the Lord bless you. Thank you, Joel. Well, it is great to be with you tonight. Really good to... Come to this special occasion. I've never been to the Lloyd Jones uh, Memorial Lecture, and when I was invited, I immediately said yes. Normally, I say, "Give me a few days to pray about that," but uh, I have so much respect for Lloyd Jones that I just said yes. Um, and actually, the book that's coming out today um, is on Reformed experiential preaching, and the second part of the book looks at uh, preachers from Zwingli. To Lloyd Jones. So the last chapter in the book is, uh, in the middle section of the book is on Lloyd Jones and how he preached uh, experientially as well. So I, I have chosen my topic uh, with Dr. Lloyd Jones in mind, and I'm tempted to say some things about him, but I thought about him 
and thought he probably won't want me to do that. He'd probably rather have me just speak to you about the subject at hand, which he would hold so dear. So I want to read with you from 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 through 9. 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 9. But refuse profane and old wise fables and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Isn't it interesting that John Calvin translated this word uh, godliness here in verse 7 and in verse 8 as pietas, piety. Calvin said that the Old Testament word for pietas is the fear of the Lord. And the New Testament word is godliness. And so when we speak about reformed piety tonight, we're speaking about something very, very, very positive. Something that God honors, something that every Christian wants to grow in, and something that we all desperately need. If you said to John Calvin, I'm sure, Calvin, you're such a pious man, I think he would have hung his head and said, Oh, would to God it were so. And we've allowed the world around us to hijack this precious word and actually think of it as something negative. Reformed piety is my subject tonight. Not just any piety. Reformed biblical piety. And so I want to look at that with you from the covenantal and the experiential perspective. I'm going to argue tonight that when we just come off the back of commemorating the Reformation's 500th anniversary, we need to remember that this movement was not just about justification by faith alone, or reformed worship, or priesthood of all believers, or the issue of authority. But a good case could be made that this movement is all about inculcating reformed piety. So I want to look at four thoughts with you. First, I want to give you a a bird's eye view of what piety is by looking at Calvin's view of it as a magisterial premier representative. Second, I want you to understand how piety relates to the covenant of grace. And third, I want you to understand how reformed piety should be promoted in the context of genuine biblical Christian experience. And then we want to present briefly in conclusion a few thoughts that interface these three concepts in Reformed thought, piety, covenant, and experience. So first then, let's take a quick look at Calvin's piety. Calvin's institutes earned him the reputation of being the preeminent systematician of the Protestant Reformation. 
His achievement as an intellectual, however, is often considered in isolation from the vital, spiritual, and pastoral context in which he wrote his theology. In the preface to his classic, he tells King Francis I, the only reason I wrote my institutes is to promote pietas among the people. The only reason I wrote my institutes is to promote piety among the people. You see, for Calvin, theological understanding and practical piety, truth and usefulness are inseparable. They belong together. Theology, first of all, deals with knowledge. But Calvin says, knowledge of God and of ourselves. And there's no true knowledge, quote, he says, there is no true knowledge where there is no true piety. So pietas, or piety, is one of Calvin's major themes in his theology. John T. McNeil said, Calvin's theology is simply his piety described at length. For Calvin, pietas designates the right attitude, the right attitude of man toward God. An attitude of phenomenal reverence in the sight of God. And Calvin says that true reverence of God includes six things. Heartfelt worship. True knowledge, saving faith, filial fear, prayerful submission, reverential love. And so Calvin writes, knowing who and what God is, which is theology, informs and leads to right attitudes toward him and right conduct or doing what pleases him. Piety. He goes on to say, I call piety that reverence joined with love of God, which the knowledge of his benefits induces. And then he adds this statement. The whole life of Christians ought to be a sort of practice of piety. And the goal of that practice, the goal of our entire life, of course, as you know in Calvin, is the glory of God. That's the end all, the be all of piety, acknowledging, magnifying that glory that shines in God's attributes in the structure of the universe and in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So for Calvin, glorifying God, which is only possible through genuine piety, supersedes our personal salvation. The pious man, said Calvin, confesses, We are gods, that is, capital G-O-D, apostrophe S. We are gods, we belong to him in other words. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. We are gods, let his wisdom and will therefore rule all our actions. We are gods, let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. But how do we, how do we glorify God? Calvin has an answer. Quote, God has prescribed for us a way in which he will be glorified by us, namely, piety. Piety which consists in the obedience of his word. He that exceeds these bounds 
does not go about to honor God, but rather to dishonor Him. Obedience lies then at the center of piety for Calvin. Obedience, said Calvin, to God's Word means taking refuge in Christ for forgiveness of our sins, knowing Him through His Word, serving Him with a loving heart, doing good works in gratitude for His goodness, and exercising self-denial to the point of loving our enemies. In other words, total surrender of ourselves to God Himself, His Word, and His will. Hence the motto, the famous motto of Calvin you've heard so many times. My heart I offer to Thee, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. That's piety. It's comprehensive for Calvin. It's the desire of all who are truly godly. It involves all of truth. It involves all of life. It involves all of God. It involves all of me. It is absolutely comprehensive. Now, when you study Calvin, what's amazing, if you look up all the references to Pietas, is it is absolutely everywhere. And I'd like to suggest to you that it's first theological, second ecclesiological, and third practical for Calvin. Let's look at each of these uh, just, just briefly. It's a theological piety. Calvin said theologically, piety can be realized only through union and communion with Christ. Outside of Christ, no genuine piety. Maybe false piety. True piety is in union and communion with Christ and partakes of all His benefits. For outside of Christ, says Calvin, even the most religious person lives only for himself. And then he makes this amazing statement. Only in Christ can the pious live as willing servants of their Lord, as faithful soldiers of their commander, and as obedient children of their father. I think that's a summary of what Calvin strove to live. And so for Calvin, by faith, believers both belong to and possess Christ and grow in Him and want to live unto Him. And so, from Christ they receive, by faith, the double grace, as Calvin called it, or the double cure, as he said once, of justification and sanctification, which provide, together, a twofold cleansing from sin and uncleanness. Calvin says this, justification confers imputed purity, think piety, and sanctification produces Actual purity. Think piety. Now, ecclesiologically, Calvin also stresses piety across the board. He says, piety is nurtured in the church by the preaching of the word, the administrations of the holy sacraments, and the offering of praise by the singing of the psalms. Interesting trinity here for Calvin. Preaching, sacraments, psalm singing, spiritual growth and birth happens within the church. The church is mother, educator, nourisher of every believer, for the Spirit acts in her and through her ministry. 
For Calvin, under the care and instruction of the church, believers progress from spiritual infancy to adolescence to full manhood in Christ. And they don't graduate from the church until they die. And then they go to be with the church triumphant forever. So the preaching of the word, says Calvin, is the primary nurturer of piety. For it's our spiritual food and it's our medicine for spiritual health. With the Spirit's blessing, ministers are spiritual physicians who apply the word to our souls as earthly physicians apply medicine to our bodies. And that is, of course, the the work of the Holy Spirit for Calvin. So that when the minister gets on the pulpit in all his weakness, fear, and trembling, he also gets on the pulpit with confidence and power because he believes the Spirit will take the word and use it as the internal minister, as Calvin called the Spirit, to put the words of the external minister into his bow and shoot the arrows out of the Word of God to the congregation, directing each arrow to each heart of each hearer according to each hearer's need. That's Calvin's view of preaching. Two ministers preach every sermon, he said. The physical one. And the Holy Spirit. What a glorious view of preaching. No wonder it promotes piety. Because a spirit takes the word and applies it to the soul. Calvin defines sacrament this way. A testimony of divine grace toward us confirmed by an outward sign with mutual attestation of our piety toward him. He calls the sacraments exercises of piety. It reminds you of 1 Timothy 4. Bodily exercise. Well, it profits a little bit. We need it. But this kind of exercise, the exercise of godliness, the exercise of piety, is great gain. So the sacraments confirm our faith, strengthen our faith, make us grateful to God for His abundant grace, and they elicit from us mutual attestations of piety back to Him. So when He covenants Himself to us in the sacraments, we go out and covenant ourselves back to Him. Like Thomas Boston did after... Sacrament of the Lord's Supper, he went home and he wrote in his diary, resolved to leave the Savior of Christ behind wherever I go, whoever I visit, whatever I do. I covenant my life back to him who covenants himself to me. And then Calvin said, piety is exercised in a heartfelt singing of the Psalms. In fact, he called the Psalms the canonical manual of piety. Healing it as an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. It's no coincidence that the only place in all his writings where Calvin really explained his own conversion was in the introduction to the Psalms. His commentary in the Psalms. And he says something like this. It's the only time Calvin ever brags in his 59 volumes. He says, you know, I actually count myself as a qualified expositor of the Psalms. And you're reading and you think, Calvin's saying this? And then he says, because everything in these Psalms 
I have experienced myself. Therefore, I feel like I'm qualified to expound them. I've, I've been where David's been. The anatomy of all the parts of the soul has been exposed in me that I find here in these Psalms. So Kelvin, as you know, immersed himself in the Psalms for 25 years as a commentator, a preacher, a biblical scholar, a worship leader in helping compile the famous Genevan Psalter. He says in his preface, there is no other book in which we are more perfectly taught the right manner of praising God or in which we are more powerfully stirred up to the performance of a true exercise of piety. Psalm singing. It's one of the four principal acts of church worship, Kelvin believed. It's an extension of prayer, he said. An extension of the most significant vocal contribution of people in the service. So under the Spirit's direction, psalm singing tunes the hearts of believers for glory, he concluded. And then finally, for Kelvin... However, piety doesn't stop with theology or ecclesiology, but it comes into personal practice. Although Calvin viewed the church as the nursery of piety, he also emphasized the need for personal piety. And for Calvin, such piety is, is, is at the core of our existence, at the core of our heart. It's the, as, as well the beginning and the end of genuine Christian living. And he has that wonderful section in the Institutes, which Burke Parsons in America has just retranslated with Aaron Denlinger. And Ligonier has put it out in a fresh, beautiful translation, The Christian Life, in which Calvin says, this really is personal piety in practice. Heartfelt prayer, repentance, self-denial, cross-bearing, obedience, and the Christian's response to the world. For Calvin, those six things are really at the heart of practicing piety in the world in which we live. And that last one's very interesting. You know, Calvin believed in what, what he called the complexio oppositorum, the, the complexity of opposites when it came to this world. On the one hand, he says, over on this extreme, this world is a wonderful place. And God's people... Receive every single thing they receive out of the right hand of God's favor through Jesus Christ. So when they look at their spouse, their children, their, their job, their, uh, today we'd say our car, our, 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 our home, our furniture, we, we dedicate it all to God. We see it all is coming to us undeserved. Everything above ground is undeserved. We only deserve death and hell. And this all comes to us from Christ. What blessings we have in this world. What lack of right do we ever have to complain about anything. We're always getting much better than we deserve. What a wonderful God of grace we have. This world is a wonderful place to be by the grace of God in Christ. And that generates a piety of gratitude, Calvin says. On the other hand, this world is a sepulcher. It's a cemetery. This world is a stinking place. We live and we walk in the smoke of sin and we battle sin in our own hearts. and We grow weary of iniquity and we grow weary that we can't live to God the way we would. Oh, this world is a dreadful place. Oh, would to God 
Lord Jesus, come quickly. That we would soon be sin-free in Emmanuel's land where we no longer have to complain with Paul. Evil is present with me. Now Calvin says, you take the complexity of this, this wonderful world, this awful world, and you bring them together in the Christian life and you make a straight path of Christian moderation. Walking circumspectly. You don't get, you don't get giddy with how wonderful this world is or the possessions of this world because you remember you're still stained with sin in this world. But you also don't despair because you remember God is much better to you than you ever deserve and bestows blessings in Christ upon you every day. And you enjoy this world more than an unbeliever ever can because you're receiving everything out of the right hand of Christ and everything is dedicated to Him. And you see, Calvin says, this balanced view of this world promotes pietas. And Calvin strove to live that life. He wasn't perfect, of course not. On his deathbed, he called all the elders and Geneva Council and he said, forgive me for my irascible temper. He had a bit of a temper on him. I suppose you would too if you worked seven days a week, 20 hours every day. And dealt with a thousand decisions a day. But once they forgave him, he said this to them. You also know that I can say with my entire heart, I have brought you the word of God. I have never falsified or twisted one scripture to my knowledge. I've brought you the word of God. And when he died, Theodore Beza got all the theological students in Geneva together. And he said, today, today, our beloved Calvin has passed away. A man who is as easy to criticize as he is difficult to imitate. Because he practiced the piety, the piety he taught. His life was a transcript of his sermons. That's what we need desperately in our day. Theologically, ecclesiastically, practically, personally. You see, for Calvin, it was all one piece. It was all one piece. Living the fear of the Lord, living godly, living a truly pious life that would ultimately profoundly impact not just the individual or the family, but the church, the community, the world. That was his goal. That was his passion. That was the motivation behind Geneva Seminary. His piety for Calvin was so critically important. But it was connected to the character of God, you see. It wasn't something you did out of works. It wasn't something you did that you climbed up to God. It was God's grace coming to you. And God's grace coming to you by covenant. So for Calvin and the Reformed Christians who followed him, this piety was always grounded in God's sovereign, eternal, loving covenant of grace. As Calvin said, and I quote, God's people have never had any other rule of reverence and piety than that of covenant. So what is this covenantal piety? Well, that's my second thought. And in much, much contemporary discussion, the word covenantal has become rather nebulous today. For older Reformed theologians, however, covenant almost always has specific reference to God's covenantal dealings with man, primarily in the covenant of grace. 
rooted and grounded in the eternal intra-Trinitarian divine council where God purposed to redeem a people, a specific people, to himself to live godly, to live pious in Christ Jesus out of thankfulness for his salvation. And the outworking of that purpose in history was first announced already in the Garden of Eden post-fall. Genesis 3.15 And then progressed through God's dealings with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David until finally it was expounded by the prophets and became fulfillment in Christ. And the Reformed have called this consistently throughout church history the covenant of grace. And they've articulated the response to that covenant as a covenantal piety. A piety that finds its content and takes its shape from the particularities of God's economy of redemption. And this piety is known, this covenantal piety, is known for three primary marks I want to lay out before you. The first is, it's intensely relational. Intensely relational. The second is, it has definite ethical content. Definite ethical content. And third It has to it a communal dynamic. A communal dynamic. So, let's look first at just a moment at this piety of relationship in the covenant. The heart of the covenant is relationship. Relationship with God. I will be your God and you shall be my people. That's covenant language. Moses declared to the Israelites on the plains of Moab God's intention in the covenant of grace to bring men and women and children into relationship with himself. Deuteronomy 29. And the scriptures assert that relationship repeatedly and clearly through what's called the Emmanuel principle. Through the covenant of grace, God declares he will be our God and we shall be his people. So at bottom, the covenant of grace is God's method of calling and transforming a mass of men and women, young and old, into becoming the people of God. And the intimacy and the power of this covenantal relationship between God and His people, that's everywhere in the Scriptures. Presenting God's redemptive acts as expressions not simply of God's character, but also as expressions of the outworking of His bond with His covenant people. God doesn't only tell us who He is, but He also names Himself through His people. He's the God whose relationship with His people is reflected visibly in His actions. The God who has eyed His people from the beginning of time, who's loved them from eternity, the God who accomplished the great work of redemption with these specific people in view, and the God who intimately enters into relationship by calling His people His very own children. And of course, I've got a whole two or three dozen Scripture proofs behind this, this one sentence I just said to you, because there's so much abundant proof of that. In the scripture. This is a personal covenantal relationship. It's not an automatic, distant, cold, causal thing. 
that we talk about with dry eyes. It's, it's something that, that penetrates the inmost being of man. The wonder, the miracle, that the holy triune God of the universe would want to enter into covenant with someone like me. That the Father would want to look around heaven and find the best He had, His only begotten Son, and give Him for the worst He could find. A sinner that's hell-worthy. Now, John Murray refers to this covenantal relationship as mutuality. Mutuality. A dynamic of reciprocity seen in passages such as Genesis 17. You see, initially, the covenant relationship is one-sided. God initiates, God establishes the covenant bond between Himself and His people, Genesis 17, 4-8. But then the relationship resulting from that initiation is so precious that it commands and elicits human response and invests that response with meaning and power. Verses 9 through 14. So the covenantal relationship, though not between equals or peers, is by its very nature a covenant mutual, said John Murray. Never it is marked by one party being unconcerned about the actions or desires of the other party. So this mutuality of the believer's covenantal relationship with God does not reflect contingency or uncertainty in that relationship, but rather nearness and permanency of the bond between God and His elect. It's like marriage in a way. Good marriage relationships involve such great Mutuality that even exceed the closest friendships, yet that mutuality grows not out of a conditionality to the marriage, but out of the intimacy and the endurance coming from with outside from, from, from out of the womb of the marriage. And so it is with God's relationship with his people. This covenantal relationship between God and His people, has infused reformed piety with a strongly, warmly personal character. God offers Himself to me for 100%, and I respond and offer myself to Him for 100%. And when we know that personalness, and we're assured with a certainty within us, Reformed Christians have found such amazing comfort, even under persecution, in knowing that they are adopted children of God, that they could stand in the flames and give praise to God even as they die. And they have written of their Savior with the raptures of personal love, and they've even undertaken personal covenants to specify actions and habits through which they will seek greater and greater and greater nearness to the God who has saved them. So for the Reformed, piety is not simply conformity to a norm or some cold embrace of the covenant of grace. It's the cultivation of a relationship that God has initiated and that He's called them to cherish and explore and nurture and love, and that one day will break out into beatific vision and everlasting glory and a perfect utopian marriage, Revelation 19, 6-9, with the Lord Jesus Christ, sin-free forever and ever. The culmination of the covenant. 
But also, this is a relationship with ethical content. Ethical content. We're not left to discover or determine for ourselves how God is to be loved and served in the Bible. Almost without exception, classical covenant reform theology has understood the law of God, meaning especially the Ten Commandments, to be the living and accurate reflection. This is Calvin's words. The living and accurate reflection of the holiness of God. In the moral law, God describes what His holiness looks like when it is lived out in the midst of human society. Given this connection between the law and the divine character, it's no surprise that the Reformed also have insisted on a basic continuity of that law from the Garden of Eden to Mount Sinai to the New Testament church. And thus, while some consign the moral law as summarized in the Ten Commandments to another time and another place and another era, Reformed Christianity has always resisted that temptation and asserted the abiding character of the law and the obligation of all men to obey it and its usefulness as a rule of life for all who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even Luther was afraid of the terminology, third use of the law. So the law is a stick. God first uses it to beat me to Christ, and then he puts it in my hand as a cane to walk the Christian life. And Samuel Bolton said, God sends me by the law to the cross, and from the cross he sends me back to the law to live the Christian life. This covenant has ethical contact. God has holiness in mind. When he saves his people. And it's evident in the New Testament that the law defined understanding of holiness, though it may be augmented by Jesus, has not changed. Jesus saw his earthly ministry as establishing the law in its full spirituality rather than abolishing it. And Paul called for Christians' lives to be guided by the express commandments of the moral law that he describes as holy and just. And good. And so as the covenant holds forth exceeding great and precious promises to God's people, 2 Corinthians 7, so also it imposes on them the obligations of faith and love and obedience. And these two parts of God's covenant of grace must not be put asunder. The law that once condemned them as sinners has become a rule of life to all who are saved In Christ. The Reformed have always emphasized the unity of God's covenantal dealings under both Testaments. And thus, beginning with Calvin himself, they saw this third use of the law as the principal use of the law. As the one principle out of which the Christian lives. I want to please God. I want to reflect His character by reflecting His law which reflects His character. And so since covenant theology has placed the Ten Commandments at the center of Reformed piety, it's no wonder that some of the most profound Reformed treatments of piety take their shape explicitly from the Ten Commandments. Until the present day, expositions of the Ten Commandments have figured prominently in Reformed preaching, 
in Reformed confessional literature, in devotional literature, in catechesis. You know, Ian Green did this incredible study of all the little catechism books of all the ministers in the Reformed and Puritan era. And he found in all of them an exposition of the Ten Commandments when it came to living the Christian life, as it figures so prominently also in the um, Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Larger Catechism. Now, thirdly, this covenant also has a communal dynamic, a communal dynamic. The same law that requires us to love God above all to fulfill the first table of the law requires us to love our neighbor as ourselves out of gratitude to God, aiming to fulfill the second table of the law. And this other person focus has led reform piety to attach particularly importance both to the church and to the family. So with regard to the church, covenantal reform piety has maintained Calvin's attention to a strong ecclesiastical piety, to the communion of the saints, the means of grace dispensed in public worship, and even church discipline. The Reformed have understood personal piety as something that is pursued in fellowship with the body of Christ and never in isolation from the church. The scripture speaks of the church as a nation, 1 Peter 2.9, as a church, Revelation 2.1, as a building, Ephesians 2. At every point, imagery that speaks of one entity rather than as many isolated individuals. And so the Reformed have always seen the implications of this corporate identity for piety plainly, for example, in the fourth commandment by which God commands not only that His people hallow the Sabbath as a day of rest, but also make it possible for even their servants and their livestock to enter into that rest. So within Reformed piety, the awareness of being part of a covenant people has created a dynamic whereby growth and holiness draws us out of our isolation, out of our monasticism, and into the life and the work and the witness of the church. But secondly, Reformed piety gives special attention to the Christian family. Nowhere is that stated more clearly, perhaps, than Psalm 103. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear Him and His righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep His covenant, and to those that remember His commandments to do them. You see, David is exalting God's grace here, God's faithfulness, not only to the present generation of His people, but to their children and their grandchildren. And by implication, from generation to generation, from everlasting to everlasting, to a thousand generations of them that love Him. So far from being a secondary issue, Calvin saw this intergenerational steadfastness, quote, as the principal part of the covenant. That's taken from his commentary, Genesis 17, 7. The principal part of the covenant. So at its best, the reform piety emphasis embodies Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9, a piety of intergenerational discipleship in which the older generations 
live their lives driven by the desire to communicate the faith by word and action to the next generation, teaching them diligently the truths of God. And the younger generation, therefore, is not left to cast about for answers to their most yearning questions because these questions are answered covenantally by older Christians, parents, pastors, teachers who speak of God and apply His Word to the realities of everyday life. And so Reformed piety is filled with a hope and expectation that the promise of the covenant-keeping God will be realized in the lives of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And this multi-generational dynamic has sustained the Reformed emphasis on catechesis and family worship and Christian education for centuries in which covenant children are earnestly instructed about their need to come to personal repentance and faith in Christ and is characterized, therefore, in a family dynamic. The word family is used more than a hundred times in the book of Numbers alone. God is a family God. And piety is to characterize not only individuals, but also families as a divine institution through which our covenant-keeping God most commonly works. And before I move to my, my, my last main thing, experiential context in relationship to piety and covenant, I want to just look at with you just a moment at abuses, abuses of covenantal piety. Covenantal piety has been sorely abused at various points, personally, ethically, communally distorted, and brought people into doctrinal error and spiritual neglect when one aspect of the covenant is exalted and another let go. And the result is an unbalanced, spiritually destructive substitute or counterfeit version of genuine biblical reformed covenant theology. I'm going to give you four quick words. Number one, antinomianism. Antinomianism. In the history of reformed Christianity, different movements have elevated the personal and devotional elements of reformed piety and minimized the ethical and communal elements of concern. And the result is an antinomian Emphasis that focuses on a privileged standing before God while neglecting or denying the obligations of duty that belong to it. Such an emphasis distorts and injures the very nature of a genuine piety that exercises oneself unto godliness. Second problem, legalism. Similarly destructive, on the other hand, are those movements that prioritize Reformed piety's ethical contact so as to damage its personal component. Piety is then reduced to doing one's duty at church, at home, and at large. And membership in the covenant community is taken as a guarantee of eternal life. And with little or no concern for a genuine personal experience of God's grace in Christ, piety is reduced to external conformity to the laws of God and man. And godliness becomes mere outward facade, mere human morality. 
and such legalism views the law as constitutive of one's relationship with God rather than as a guide or teacher of duty to those who by faith enjoy that relationship. Thirdly, presumptive regeneration. Presumptive regeneration exalts the communal aspect of Reformed piety above every other component. And this particular error has taken two different forms. In the first instance, some have concluded that God's ordinary intergenerational work is a guaranteed and effectual work for one and all. Thus, the children of believers are necessarily seen as regenerate even from infancy. In some versions of this error, its exponents have even advocated baptismal regeneration. While others have urged their children of believers to be at least presumed to be regenerate, unless or until there's evidence to the contrary. Whatever forms this particular error has taken, however, they share the same root. In each instance, the communal dynamic of Reformed covenantal piety is seen to work independently of either personal, divinely initiated relationship or personal manifestation of ethical conformity. And so the experiential emphasis of the Christian life, of a personal relationship with God from heart to heart, is simply set aside. And hyper-covenantalism swallows up the need for personal regeneration and personal vital saving faith and personal heartfelt repentance. And fourth word is hyper-Calvinism. An error that stems from this as well is, if not in doctrine, at least in practice, there can be an impulse toward hyper-Calvinism in which God's ordinary working through family and church relationships has caused some Reformed Christians to focus so much on those things that they neglect the imperative of evangelism to bring sinful men and women out of the world into a real relationship with himself. And the church and the families belonging to it, well, they're very few. And it's very rare for God to work in a family, according to some hyper-Calvinistic circles. And so it becomes a closed society, existing by and for itself. And such churches are not cities set upon a hill so they cannot be hid. Their members are candles put under a bushel and not on a candlestick to give light unto all, thus defeating the very purpose for which Christ builds His church in the world. And so in both, in both the brightest, strength, its brightest strengths and its most persistent errors, Reformed piety has been a covenantal piety. But in its true form, Reformed piety organically emerges from that covenant of grace by which God first redeems His people, gathers them out of the world, enfolds them in His church, and then calls them to and gives them the spiritual capacities for a life of devotion to Him. And that life becomes known personally in the soul in what we call experiential piety. Hence the intimate connection between piety, covenant, and genuine Christian experience. My third thought.
Until the mid-19th century, 1830s to be exact, Calvin and the Reform were often labeled as experimental or experiential preachers. Calvin actually uses both terms, by the way. The term experimental comes from the Latin experimentum, meaning trial. It's derived from the verb experior, which means to put to a test. So, in Calvin, you see, experiential and experimental mean we must test our experiences by the word of God. Isaiah 8, verse 20, if they speak not according to, to this word, it's because there's no light in them. Or as Luther put it, if you can't find your experience back in the Bible, it's from the devil and not from God. So experiential piety arises when by God's grace, the truth of God's word is applied to the whole range of the believer's experience, including his relationship with God, his family, the church, and the world around him. Experiential preaching seeks to make plain, biblically, what the Reformers called vital religion. How a sinner must be stripped of his self-righteousness, driven to Christ alone for salvation, led to the joy of simple reliance on Christ. Encounter the plague of indwelling sin still within him, battling against temptation, enduring trial, suffering affliction, gaining victory by faith in Christ. Such preaching, such preaching is the power of God unto salvation that transforms men and nations. And the Reformed in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, solid Reformed preachers, Calvinistic, experiential preachers, had great fruits upon their ministries, by and large. Because God honors such preaching. It describes the vital experience of the children of God in order to give glory to God. Romans 5. It clearly marks, explains the marks and fruits of the saving grace necessary for a believer. Matthew 5, Galatians 5. And it sets before the believer and unbeliever alike their eternal futures, calling all to faith in Christ as the only Savior. But here, too, we can easily go wrong. We can fall into experientialism where we worship experience for its own sake. The Reformed and the Puritan never did that. People that judge them for doing that haven't really read them rightly or they haven't read them at all. G.I. Packer said it so well. The Reformers and especially the Puritans were eager to trace out the work of the Holy Spirit in their own soul, not to be introspective or navel gazers, but they were eager to do that so that they could give all the glory to God and be drawn all the closer to Him. So what do we have to do when we preach experientially? Let me give you six or seven marks and then we have a few conclusions and we're done. Number one, experiential piety is always based on the written word. Calvin is clear. If you can't preach about a Christian's experience from the text at hand, honestly, You shouldn't do it at all. You've got to have experiential preaching flowing from the text. It springs up where the seed of the word is sown, Calvin says. So you build your experiential elements of your sermon out of the word of God. Mysticism separates experience from the word. Historic reform conviction demands the marriage of biblical and experiential faith. Number two, 
Experiential piety centers on Jesus Christ. He's the great theme, the controlling contour of all our preaching, also our experiential preaching, and all our piety is it's all focused and is in Jesus. For he's the supreme focus, the prism, and the goal of all God's revelation. And therefore, a true Calvinistic preacher must be determined not to know anything among his congregation, like Paul, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. As one Puritan put it, Christ is the jewel in the midst of every sermon. Or as William Perkins concluded his great homiletics textbook, to preach one Christ by Christ to the praise of Christ is the sum of all that I'm saying. Or as Cotton Mather put it, exhibit as much as you can of a glorious Christ. Let the motto upon your whole ministry be, Christ is all. And so sound exegesis finds Christ in all the scriptures just as Jesus himself did talking to the travelers on the way to Emmaus. As every road used to lead to Rome in the ancient world, so every sermon and every chapter of the Bible, in one way or another, to a greater or lesser degree, leads to Jesus Christ. Search the Scriptures, Jesus said, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Experiential piety seeks the intimate, personal, transforming knowledge of God in Christ for every single hearer. Three, experiential piety is applied to the practical life as well, to all of life. Robert Burns, in his famous introduction to the complete works of uh, Thomas Halliburton in 1837, defines such religion as Christianity, experiential religion, as Christianity brought home to men's business and their bosoms. And he went on to say that the principle on which Christianity rests is that it should not only be known and understood and believed, but felt and enjoyed and practically applied to every area of life. Charles Bridges called it perpetual application. Answer directory. For the public worship of God, put it this way. He, the preacher, is not to rest in general doctrine, though never so much cleared and confirmed, but to bring it home to special use by application to his hearers, which, albeit it proved to be a work of great difficulty to himself, requiring much prudent zeal and meditation, and to the natural and corrupt man will be very unpleasant. Yet he is to endeavor to perform it in such a manner that his auditors may feel the word of God to be living and powerful and a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, And that if any unbeliever or ignorant person be present, he may have the secrets of his heart may manifest and give glory to God. And Westminster Divines go on to say that this application should be done by instruction in doctrine, confutation of error, exhortation to obedience, dehortation against sin, comfort for the afflicted, and notes of trial for self-examination. And we could add a seventh one to the list, doxology, for showing forth the praises of God. But it's always, always applying the word. Four, experiential piety probes by spiritual discernment. It separates the true 
from the false. The believer from the unbeliever. As the Heiberg Catechism says, preaching is the key that opens the kingdom of heaven to believers and shuts it against the unbeliever. Just as Jesus did repeatedly on the sermon in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, if our religion is not experiential, we will perish if we don't know God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. We will not have eternal life. Not because experience itself saves us, but because the Christ who saves sinners must be experienced personally as the foundation upon which the house of our eternal hope is built. He's the only rock and we must be on that rock. Number five, experiential piety is energized with idealism, realism, and optimism. Idealism, realism, and optimism. Let me explain what I mean by that. I was, I was drafted in, in the lottery system. I was in the last year of the lottery system for the United States Army. So I quickly signed up for the reserves when I got a low lottery number. And uh, the last day of my active duty of six months and then six years of meetings and you can be called back up to war and so on. The last day, my boss came to me in the Army and he said, Now remember, son, if you get called up to come back in, fight for, the, for Uncle Sam, for the government of the United States, you've got to remember three things. You've got to remember, number one, how wars should be fought. You've, you've been trained for it. Don't forget what you've learned. Number two, you've got to remember that wars never go the way they should go. They're always messy. They're always bloody. And you've got to know what that's about as well. The experience of fighting. And number three, you've got to remember the end goal. You're fighting for the country. You're fighting for the future. And later I thought, you know, that's a really good definition of experiential preaching. You know, preachers are always thinking in terms of illustrations. Because, you see, the preacher needs to preach Romans 8. The idealism of the Christian life. No separation, no condemnation, the Spirit working in us, groaning. Uh, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? The glories of the Christian life. The beauties of the Christian life. You've got to preach them. You've got to make people jealous to be a Christian. But you also got to preach realistically. You've got to preach Romans 7. He wretched man that I am. The good that I would, I find myself not doing. Etc. See, if you preach only Romans 7 and you don't preach Romans 8, you leave the child of God satisfied with all his poverty and struggles. If you preach only Romans 8 and you don't preach Romans 7, <laughs> you take that poor child of God and he says, I'm not a Christian at all. I just can't reach up to those heights. It's, I, I'm done. But you also have to preach the optimism of the Christian life. There is an end goal. We are guaranteed to win the battle. And we're going to be with Jesus. The church militant will become the church triumphant. We need to preach about heaven and the experience, the glorious experience of being with Jesus forever. Sin free in Emmanuel's land. And true experiential preaching. You see, all three are involved. Revelation 21, the glorious future. Romans 8. The idealistic here and now. Romans 7. The realism. It's now but not yet. All are involved. Number six. Piety rooted 
Experiential piety must be rooted in heart knowledge. We're not just talking, when we talk about experiential piety, about knowledge in our mind. We are talking about knowledge in our mind. We don't divorce the two. Head knowledge and heart knowledge, as the old divines used to call it. But as Wilhelm Brockel said, head knowledge is the soil in which the Holy Spirit plants the seed of heart knowledge and causes the plant to take root and to grow. No soil, no plant. You can't have heart knowledge with no head knowledge. But head knowledge is never sufficient for eternity. That's their point. And finally, seven, experiential piety always manifests its fruits in holy love. Holy love. When you see people who are truly wrought upon by the Spirit of God, they will love the souls of their loved ones. They will love the souls of others. One of the most encouraging signs to me when someone's a new convert is when they come to you after, even after just a couple weeks of, of, of being delivered in Christ and they say, but pastor, you know, my, my mother, my mother doesn't know the Lord yet. What can I do? My, my grandfather, you know, they're just overwhelmed with concern. As soon as they see the light, they have love for others. That's an experiential reality of belonging to the church militant. Calvin said, we, we then aim for the common good of others as we share with them, especially with fellow members of the body of Christ. He said, everyone must be fulfilling his calling with mercy to others. The civil magistrate in his government, the minister in his preaching, the businessman in his stewardship and charity, and the employee in his conscientious work. Well, finally, conclusions. Reform piety, exemplified in the writing of Calvin, and expressed through the centuries of preaching and living the word, seeks to weave together the covenantal and experiential emphases into a seamless garment of truth and godliness without emphasizing one at the expense of others, the other. Piety, true piety sustains our life in biblical balance, in gospel power, and in spiritual richness. And so Reformed piety engages people both in a personal response to God's word and in communal relationships under the triune God. As piety of the word, it embraces both gospel and law, both the warm relationship established in Christ and the vital obedience empowered by the Spirit. It's communal dynamic, guards against self-absorbed mysticism and morbid introspection, and its discriminatory preaching protects against the dangerous presumption that outward participation in a Christian family and church equals salvation. Covenantal preaching and teaching that de-emphasizes experiential preaching and teaching is prone to produce congregations where all the children grow up under the assumption that they are saved even if they do not show the fruits that they are. Experiential preaching and teaching that ignores covenantal preaching and teaching can easily slip into a misguided experientialism that ends in spiritual experiences rather than Christ. And that can lead, consciously or unconsciously, to a kind of presumptive unregeneration in which there's little expectation for the Lord to work along covenantal lines in the church. The church today needs both emphases and balance to promote a robust, reformed piety. So biblically balanced piety follows the Reformation track of gospel holiness against nominalism 
It demands the application of biblical truth to the practical life. Against formalism, its experiential discernment exposes the hypocrite. Against antinomianism, its ethical dimensions mark off authentic Christianity by the moral law. Against legalism, its evangelical theology flies the banner of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Reformed piety must always be profoundly theological to maintain its balance not only, but also to maintain its roots in the knowledge of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And so although the term piety today may suggest a folding of the hands in quietistic devotion, in our forefathers, Reformed and Puritan and post-Puritan piety, it was anything but that. Reformed piety stirred Christians up to love and to good works and personal devotion and public worship and using one's gifts and especially to supremely adoring and loving God and loving our fellow sinners and sufferers' souls. And so the constant motion of holiness presses the godly into warfare against sin and against indwelling sin especially and against Satan and the enticing world and all the enemies of the soul. And reformed experiential preaching equips the saints in Christ for this battle. It imparts to them the high ideals of the Christian life, the gritty realism of human folly and sin, and it lifts up their eyes to see Christ, seated now at God's right hand, and one day coming on the clouds of heaven. This reformed piety is the godliness of pilgrims, running the race set before them, looking to Jesus, passing through this spiritual vanity fair on their way to the glories of the celestial city. It's a piety of enduring faith and unshakable hope. And it contains within itself the very sparks of heaven to come. Let's pray. Gracious God of heaven, we thank Thee so much for genuine godly piety that honors Thee as the fruit of Thy amazing covenantal, experiential, spirit-applied work within the human soul. Oh God, give us a real, vital relationship with Thee through the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit, to Thy glory, through saving faith and gracious workings of Thy Spirit. Look down upon us in mercy and help us to stand for these glorious truths in our present generation. And may the unsaved be jealous of what they hear from the pulpit. And may the saved be fed and nurtured and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much indeed. That was very helpful. Uh, I did promise a time of Q&A. Time is short. But just briefly, are there any folks who would like to ask questions? How did Calvin's piety differ from the later movement called pietism?
You're referring particularly to German pietism, pietism with a capital P? Okay, yeah. Um, let, let, me, let me say it this way. Calvin's successors, really, are the Puritans in England and, and New England, the Scottish Covenanters in Scotland, the Dutch Nadera Reformatie movement, the Dutch Further Reformation in the Netherlands, and German pietism is kind of like a stepson. <laughs> Um, there's a few things in German pietism that are, are, are more different than the other movements are, are closer together. And one of them is that in German pietism, in general, there's exceptions. There's less concern for theological precision. And there's, uh, if anything, more concern for hands-on Christianity, uh, taking care of the orphans and, and all kinds of things like that. But in German pietism, in Franca and Spenner and, and those founders... There's a lot of Calvinism in them as well. And what happens in German pietism is the, the practical part of English Puritanism is taken over. And the Dutch Nader-Reformation, which produced a lot of systematicians, that part did not come as heavily into, into the German scene. Um, and so... It's just a bit more, a bit more practical, but a le- bit less theological, for, for the most part, and that left itself open to some of the um, fairly dangerous errors that would later sweep into it and reduce it into a kind of a quasi-Arminianism uh, over time. website um, so I think it was probably a church that holds to the um, what's called the three forms of unity so the Dutch reformed I think um, so I've seen there's a catechism I think for parents to uh, teach to children and yeah, I, re- I remember that one of the questions was uh, something like when you die where will you go and the child says to heaven and it, it looks like it looks like um, it's effectively you've got parents telling, teaching children, you're going to heaven. Um, I, and I guess it's, uh, that's probably using kind of uh, uh, is um, motivated by um, kind of the covenantal side, like covenant children. Do you think that that likely sounds like an example of one of the concerns you were talking about about this presumed? Yeah, yeah. And in in the Dutch background, well, first of all, in our particular church, we embrace the three forms of unity, but we also embrace the three Westminster standards. So we have six standards in our church. Um, We want to be uh, brothers and sisters to our Presbyterian brethren around the world as well. Um, In the Dutch Nadera Reformatie, the Dutch for the Reformation, there were individuals who embrace something similar to what Abraham Kuyper would later say in the late 19th century was presumptive regeneration. They didn't call it presumptive regeneration, but the seeds of it were there. Um, that's particularly true of the prince of the whole movement, which um, is Heisbertus Vucius. He is, he is to the Dutch movement what John Owen was to English Puritanism. And Vucius believed that it's God's normal way 
to convert children when they're very, very young. And Kuiper picked that up and ran with it and brought it further and said, that's the basis on which we baptize infants, that we presume that they're already already saved. And I think the catechism you're referring to is written by uh, Jacobus Borstius in that generation. And uh, he leaned, he was influenced a lot by Vuchin in his covenant views of children. So there were seeds of that coming in the late 17th century and early 18th century in the Dutch Nadere Reformatie. The majority of people did not, did not believe that, however. But it's a good question. Just following on from that, really, what, what about the children uh, of people who are not believers, so outside the church? Is there any specifically reformed material that deals with that, or is it something we have to kind of extrapolate, you know, at a later stage in church history and in our churches today? Yeah. Well, um, if I could, if, if there's no chalkboard here. No. If I can just, if you can watch me picture picture this. Okay, here's mom, here's dad. They're in the covenant, they're within the, they're, they're within the church. And then there's two lines here. Let's say they have 11 children. And be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And, and uh, one is converted at two years old, can never remember time, didn't hate sin, didn't love the Lord. As the child goes up, he shows the fruits of his, fruits of his life. Wonderful. Another one's converted at five, another one's maybe converted at ten, another one's converted maybe twelve, fifteen, twenty. Maybe three of them aren't converted. This would be a typical reformed view. God doesn't necessarily convert all the children, but it would be normative under under good training that He works along within those covenantal lines. That's His normal way of working. Then the reform would say, for the children outside these lines, they call them heathen children. Um, every now and then, God Maybe there's 11 out here in a group. God might take one and save that one. And the other 10 might perish. It's more normative for God to save within the covenant lines than outside. But the good news is he also does save outside. And the gospel must freely be proclaimed to the heathen, however we can do it. However, once they're saved, what happens to them? Well, the reform would say they... They want, they want to meet other believers. So they end up coming to the church and becoming members of the church. So they, they end up coming inside the covenantal lines themselves. So there's this gravitational pull in God's saving work to bring people into a covenant relationship with himself. And so that believer then comes to church and maybe that believer then finds another God-fearing young lady and those two get married and they have kids and it's all within that covenantal line. So there's, there's always this pull toward the covenantal line. So, good news, if you're a heathen out in the world, God has every ability to save you and he calls to you and he will no wise cast you out if you come to him. Better news for children growing up in the church, God normatively saves his covenant city. He's a family God. He works along covenantal lines. Yes, sir. Are you encouraged to see the spread of reformed experiential preaching in the world today, in North America, Africa, Asia, even yeah. Europe? Yeah. And can you give us some? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That's a, that's a wonderful question. Um, well, I feel very strongly about this, so <laughs> bear with me here. 
when I was a teenager already and felt called to the ministry, I already was saying to myself, why has no one ever written a book on Reformed Experiential Preaching? I was hoping for my whole life that somebody else would do it. And I was teaching it. I was teaching it. I had a special class. I taught it for 30 some years. And now I finally, finally done it. To me, it's the most important book, honestly, that I've ever done. And it, it came out today. I can't, I can't see it yet because I'm here. But uh, to me, this is very important. And I want to tell you something. 20 years ago, Crossway Books never would have done this book. Never. Not in a million years. But because there's a growing hunger for real vital relationship with God in many, many countries around the world, um, there's a growing need. That's what they themselves told me for a book like this. Because people are tired of uh, a shallow church service that doesn't speak to the heart. It just speaks to the mind. They're either tired of what they call dry theology or they're tired of fluffy stories. They want the preacher to speak from his heart through the word of God to their heart. And so there's room for such now. And Crossway, they're huge. I mean, they're the biggest reformed publisher in the world today by far. I mean, we do 25,000 catalogs of Reformation Heritage books. We're kind of like middle-sized now. Ligonier, R.C. Sproul does 100,000. That's a lot. Crossway does 750,000 catalogs. I mean, they're, they're, they're just like known throughout all the world now. And uh, they're really pushing reformed stuff. And now they asked, you mentioned about my, my systematic theology. They asked to do the systematic theology I'm working on with my, with my TA. It's going to be co-authorship. Because they said to me, if we're going to become known as a reformed experiential preaching publisher around the world, we should also become known, don't you think, they said to me, as a reformed experiential teaching publisher around the world. So they're deciding... They're deciding with all their marketing skills and their 15 salesmen at all, all different parts of the world that the world, the church world, the Christian church world is ripe for this kind of thing now, which excites me. And when I go like in Latin America, I mean, it's, you have to be there to see it. Four years ago, I went to Colombia. There were 300 ministers at the conference. They said, this is the first ministers reform conference in the history of this nation. They were so excited. 300 ministers. I went next year, there were 600. I went the following year, there were 800. I mean, just exploding. From Colombia, it's gone out in different directions. Dominican Republic is very much alive now with Reformed Experiential Preaching. Peru, Argentina, it's beginning. Bolivia, I got an invitation this afternoon to come to Bolivia for a conference of 700 ministers in Bolivia. I mean, five years ago, what was in Bolivia? Nothing. So, Brazil is exploding from within the large... Presbyterian Church, there's a, there's a segment of Reformed experiential preachers arising up from within it. They're being persecuted. Um, Africa, the great crying need in Africa for ministers right now is more education. There's a million ministers in Africa that want more education. And uh, some of them are coming a little bit in the Reformed experiential direction, but there's a dearth of, of books and, and so on. And in many of these languages as well, Spanish, there's uh, 400 Reformed books now. But uh, there's still a lot of big pocket holes that need to be filled. So Reformation Heritage Books has entered into a, um, uh, a ministry. We did it in Dominican Republic. We brainstormed with the leading ministers in the Spanish world and the leading publishers. For two whole days, we talked about what books are needed. And then we um, inaugurated a Spanish-speaking division of Reformation Heritage Books, even though we know we're going to lose a ton of money on it because... People can't afford to pay much for books. But the need is there. The revival is going on. Now, sadly, as you know very well, uh, Europe is, there's certain pockets of encouragement, but 
but it's for most part it's still pretty discouraging. Uh, America, maybe it's holding its own. Most conferences you go to that are reformed, experiential in character, they are growing slowly, uh, but often the experiential emphasis is uh, there's worldliness, there's contemporary worship mixed in with the embracing of the five points of Calvinism, and so we're longing for a more thorough reformation and more revival, genuine revival. Um, China, everything is going on in China. <laughs> All kinds of things. Uh, reform too. Encouraging things. Um, our, our students from China are increasing all the time. And um, there's lots of possibilities there. Korea, of course, saw a great big revival back in the 1950s. Um, ever since Billy Graham came there with his Arminianism, actually the crowds were big, but the effect of it was not good on Korea. And um, the experiential emphasis kind of got minimized and now too many Korean preachers are just imitating American televangelists and uh, things are going down a bit in uh, in Korea I'm afraid but there's still a lot of God-fearing people in, in Korea that that do love the experiential reformed emphasis um, Australia New Zealand uh, there's lots of little conferences going on 50 people 100 people and hungry believers much like Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, England. It's really the God-fearing here. Wonderful. I enjoy thoroughly coming to the UK and the, the, the people are very sincere. There's an experiential emphasis here, but the numbers are not what they are in so many other places that where people are just growing and exploding and finding the Reformed faith. Uh, last weekend, I was in Livonia, Michigan, only two hours away from my home. And uh, 475 people in that church and they've all come out of dispensationalism or other things and, and come to the church in the last four or five years they've become reformed and the pastors bring them reformed truth every every week and those people were alive in those five days I sold them $7,500 worth of books uh, you can tell when they're hungry right they go right after you're done talking they go they make a beeline for the book table and there's like Two rows of people around the whole book table reaching for books. And you say, ah, thank you, Lord. Because <laughs> the books will do more good in the long run than your talks. People go home, they read them, they mark them up. It changes their lives and they get transformed when the Spirit works, of course. Okay, that's a tremendously encouraging note on which to close. Let's